0: I'm Nora McInerney, and this is Terrible Thanks for Asking. For the past two episodes, we've been talking adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs. If you haven't heard those episodes, we recommend that you go back and listen to them. They're episodes 85 and 86. They tell a personal story about a woman named Britt and her childhood, framed by a study called ACEs. The study is powered by the ACEs survey, which are 10 questions that represent abuse, neglect, and household dysfunction that kids experience. And the data from this study shows that the more ACEs a kid experiences, the more toxic stress they have, and the more likely they are to experience behavioral, mental, and physical health risks as adults. Things like depression, heart disease, diabetes, autoimmune diseases, many more. But the good things in your childhood also count for something. Some of those things can be protective factors that help a kid process and understand their ACEs and give them the best chance to not live out their most risky futures. So why is all this important to know about? Well, because this is not happening to one child. The story of childhood trauma is a global story, and this episode is about going big. Because there are currently 2.2 billion children in the world, and actually my oldest just turned 18, so it's 2.2 billion minus one people under the age of 18 on our planet. And most of those 2.2 billion people will experience at least one adverse childhood experience. That means that it is, or it's going to be, your kid, or a kid in your family, or your friend's kid, or your kid's friend, or all of them. When those billions of children grow up, they are going to shape the health concerns and epidemics of the next 30 years. And what we know from all this research is that what we do right now to protect and empower kids can have an impact on those future health issues. So what are we doing? How are we addressing the health risks of our kids in 30 years? Of our grandkids in 60 years? What kind of a world will we live in when all these kids are older? As consumers, as community members, as voters, are we prioritizing things that will help? In this third and final episode of our series on childhood trauma, we're going to take a bigger picture view of this issue and how it affects our bodies and our communities and the world at large. It's a big, big picture we're taking because this is a big picture issue.
1: It's a very unaddressed public health crisis.
0: That's Dr. Brian Lynch. He's a pediatrician at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And he's going to help us get started on our big-picture journey by getting very, very, very small. Like, real small. Like Inner Space. Hit movie from the 80s. It was very, it was an odd film, but I think oddly relevant. We know that if you have ACEs, you tend to raise children that share some of your same health risks. Because when things happen to you, The
1: way your genes are expressed is changed. Then this not only impacts your health, it changes the health of future generations. Because you can pass on these changed genes, and a child who's born who's never experienced an ACE can still be at risk for the health outcomes associated with adverse childhood experiences.
0: This is called epigenetics. We used to think that our genes were static and fixed, that they were like a train track. We start the engine up at birth, we hit go, and we end up in... Yuma, or wherever, and all the towns we pass through in between are set and established before we even get on the train in the first place. But epigenetics tells us that's not how it works. Epigenetics says that our genes are actually a network of tracks, and what happens along the route can change your route. What happens to you can reroute your train of life through other towns, other climates, other ecosystems. So it means that our genes aren't dictating what will happen to us from birth. There's flexibility. The thing about genes is that we pass them on. That's why my kids have long, skinny feet. That's why some of my kids have amazing eyelashes. That's why the trauma we're dealing with is not just ours, it's our grandparents
1: you get your genetic code. And this is what's really interesting about ACEs. We probably need to be thinking two generations back, right? So if you think, you know, a mother is born, she has her over there at birth, her eggs, and the genes in those eggs are there from the parents. And so if they've experienced stress or they've had things that impact that genetic code, that's gonna be passed on. So these are intergenerational concerns.
0: As if we need another reason to just rag on the boomers. Now, they're messing up our kids. I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm 100% joking, Mom. This is not your fault, but... I'm kidding. (laughs) I am saying, though, that thinking about your own genes this way might help you even understand why your parents are the way they are or why their parents were the way they were, not just because of what they went through, but because of what's been in their genes. And this isn't me saying that you are now doomed because of the things that have happened to your grandparents.
1: The way your DNA can be expressed can be changed, and it can be changed by positive experiences. And those positive experiences can then decrease your risk. And understanding which specific gene changes do what, we're a long way from that. But we do know that you can mitigate or counteract the impact of those ACEs by promoting those positive experiences.
0: That's great news. That's such good news. Go home and buy your kids some cotton candy. Give them a nickel to take to the penny candy store. I don't know what century I'm in right now. (sighs) That is great news, but to do that, you need some awareness. You need awareness of yourself, of where you come from, of what you're doing and why you're doing it. Beyond genes, we pass things along culturally as well. A habit or a tradition was established generations ago to solve a problem or a stress or a struggle. And that problem went away. But we still do those habits or traditions anyway. Therapist Brandon Jones talked to us in the last episode about resilience. You remember, Brandon?
2: I'm kind of a unicorn. Black male therapist. We barely exist. (laughs) Born and raised in St. Paul.
0: So this time, he's helping us understand this passing on of trauma with a story.
2: So during the holiday season, there was a family and they always cut their hams in half. And the the story goes like this. So one generation asked her mom, mom, why do you cut the ham in half like that when you cook it? And mom says, that's because grandma cooked it like that. And then she said, you should ask grandma why she cooks like that. So the girl goes to grandma, grandma, why do you cook your hams like that? And she said, oh, that's how big mama used to cook them. You should ask Big Mama why you cook them like that. So then she goes and asks her great-grandmother, Hey, Big Mama, why do you cut cook the hams like that? And Big Mama says, well, back in my day when we had to cook the hams, we had a small stove, so we had to cut it in half to cook it. But what happened? Big Mama taught her daughter to cut the ham. She taught it to her daughter, and now she's teaching it to her daughter how to cook the Christmas ham. Right. But the thing is, what has changed? The stove has changed, but the habit and the cultural custom was still there. I think that that ends up happening a lot as well. in families that have trauma is that one generation goes through the trauma. They don't get an intervention, but things start to change around them. They pass that on to their kids. They pass that on their kids and they pass that on their kids. So if you think of it from that point, that transmissions theory point, chances are if you have a high A score, you can end up putting your children in situations where they have high A scores as well.
0: It's awareness of the fact that you're even cutting the ham in half that can help you make different choices and pursue healing, that can help you reroute that genetic train. But awareness is not just about you personally. It takes a systemic awareness to affect change. And that's really hard to accomplish, because in America, at least, we interact with a lot of systems, and they don't all interact with one another. So when we come back, we talk about systems. We're back. We've talked about childhood trauma on a personal level, a genetic level, and a cultural level, but there is a part of this on a bigger scale. To really understand what we can do, we have to think on a systems level.
1: Adverse childhood experiences can't be solved in a clinic or a hospital. And traditionally, sectors like healthcare, public health, schools, childcare, early childhood organizations have all done great work, but in specific silos. And those silos haven't necessarily always communicated or collaborated in the way that they need to to promote the most efficient and effective outcomes in children.
0: That's Dr. Brian Lynch again. If ACEs tells us anything, It's that things are connected. What happens to you as a kid is connected to how you're doing as an adult. So to work on an interconnected issue, we need to have an interconnected approach. So what does that look like? Well, over the past decade, Dr. Lynch has been heading up a group that works in Olmstead County, Minnesota, to connect and coordinate care for children. That group is called the Communities Coordinating for Healthy Development.
1: It involves members of public health, Rochester public schools, Head Start, Early Intervention, different providers at Mayo Clinic, and volunteers in the community.
0: One of the people who works on this project is Marjean Gunderson. Marjean is with the Olmsted County Public Health Department.
3: I am Marjean Gunderson. I am a uh, registered nurse and a public health nurse. I have worked in public health field my entire career.
0: So, like Dr. Lynch said earlier, most of our healthcare exists in silos. I mean, think about it. Does your dentist know what you talk about with your therapist? Does your ophthalmologist know what issues you're working on with your gynecologist? Do any of these people even know that the others exist? And if they do, do they all sit around talking about you? God, I wish. But is your neck bone connected to your shoulder bone? Is your shoulder bone connected to your arm bone? Is your arm bone connected to your hand bone? I don't know. I did not finish or start medical school, but all these people that you see in a professional capacity, they did. And when all the doctors are treating just one part of you without talking to each other, it's like that old parable about the blind men and the elephant, which if you have not been told this one, allow me. So there's three blind men and there's an elephant. Each of the men are trying to describe what an elephant is by touching it, but they're all touching different parts of it. So the man who has a hold of the elephant's ear is like, ooh, an elephant is so thin and flexible. A guy who's at the leg is like, you're totally wrong. An elephant is sturdy and rough and smells bad. And then the guy who's at the tusk is like, no, an elephant is very solid and expensive feeling and pointy. My pointy, get it, is that our healthcare is like an elephant in a lot of ways. It's huge. Gray, very confusing when you just interact with one part at a time. And that comes with big challenges. And that's exactly where the Communities for Coordinating Healthy Development started from about 10 years ago. They started looking at some of the reasons that doctors were not communicating with each other. And first, obviously, there's the time factor. Doctors are people. People only have 24 hours in a day.
1: Right. It takes a lot of time to not only deliver direct patient care, but then to take that time to communicate with another entity.
0: And then these people are working at different places that have different tools.
1: Different cultures and different approaches. And certainly if a home visiting service is using one screening tool and the medical home is using a different screening tool and they're telling families different things about their child's development, then that leads to ineffective care.
0: And a lot of people didn't know and maybe still don't know what ACEs even is. Even Marjean didn't know, and she's a pro. This ACE study has been out for 20 years. Where have I been? I've
3: been in public health for 35 and a half years. So I'm that person. (laughs) And there are some who are yet to come.
0: But maybe one of the biggest hurdles to getting doctors to communicate are some of the legal issues around it.
1: Certainly HIPAA, or the rules that protect medical information, certainly provide some limitations.
0: HIPAA is the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. That's not what I thought that acronym stood for at all. Basically, it was a law passed in 1996 to protect your medical information from being shared without your permission. And that ensures that you can have confidential conversations with your doctors, without the risk of it being shared with your family or your job or, you know, your, your male person. So that's good stuff, right? We need that. It's important. It protects all of us.
3: And because of HIPAA, we are not able to share information just arbitrarily with whomever we would like because we think it's going to be good for them.
0: Doctors are not easily able to share important medical data about you with each other which reinforces the silos in which caregivers operate and can be a problem when you're dealing with something, like adverse childhood experiences, that span across nearly every part of medical care. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, who enacted HIPAA, are aware of what this siloing does. They're not pleased with it. They don't want it to hold up good care. They want this act to have some flexibility to it. And Dr. Lynch and Marjean and the team have been working with that flexibility to get the systems of care to a better place, to increase communication, break down the silos, and redesign the system, which for them, in an ideal situation, looks like this.
1: To put the child at the center hub of the wheel with spokes then connecting to these supportive community resources and those resources communicating together. And I think that's the way that we're going to be able to best address the current health epidemics in children in our country, including mental health problems, obesity, and adverse childhood experiences.
0: So how do you get systems to talk with one another? Oh, meetings. Oh, you're going to need meetings. You're going to need to collaborate, share tools, adjust that paperwork.
1: And it's taken a long time in Olmstead County to create Um, authorization forms that all the organizations agree can qualify for communication of, of medical information between those organizations.
0: Everyone had to chime in with what would work for them to share, in what format, to still comply with HIPAA, but to help put that child at the center of the wheel. They've had to change forms and paperwork, decide on how to effectively communicate with patients and with each other. If we knew our
3: family was going to go see, say, Dr. Brian Lynch on Tuesday and and something had happened in the home on Monday where we could just quickly send this, this communique to him.
1: I will know what organizations they're connected with in the community that are also aiding the parents and child, and I'll know what they're finding, how often they're going, if there's any problems, because that could make a big
0: difference. A system like that gives a lot of power to the patients as well. If you're working on a parenting issue or a health issue with a public health nurse, they can update your pediatrician on the progress you're making. As a parent, oh my God, there's so much information as a parent. Doctors are asking you stuff about your kids, and you're like, I honestly don't remember. I mean, I believe that he is saying words and eating foods. But um, if he's not going to do it in front of you, then I really can't. It's just, there's so much. Having more professionals know what's up in your life and in your kids' lives and supporting that, sign me up.
3: So then the family gets sort of this reinforcing piece as well to sort of say, nice job. That, you know, because before, this is how this worked for you. And now that you are working on this, this is how this is working. And your child, is going to have a different experience than you had as a parent, right? So it's it's just connecting the whole
0: thing and making it more fluid. The system is not perfect yet, but they've had some really interesting successes. One example is in Olmstead County Schools, dealing with stress and bad behavior in classrooms. The teachers have been frustrated, students have
3: been frustrated, parents have been frustrated.
0: So to work on this, public health nurses and social workers are collaborating to teach a social-emotional learning curriculum.
3: We're teaching, you know, second graders how to uh, recognize when their brain, their amygdala, (laughs) is getting fired. and, And these students know the big words, and they use the big words. They can recognize stress, and then they practice these, you know, meditative or relaxation sort of techniques that take just minutes to do so that
0: they can help themselves self-regulate. Remember Brandon's story about cutting the ham? This is second graders looking at themselves and their behavior and being like, wait, why are we doing this? And as an adult woman who just learned about the amygdala and struggles with mindfulness, I know it has value for me as an adult. And Olmstead County knows it has value for kids, too.
3: The results are, are very clear that there is a definite improvement in the way people are able to self-regulate and calmness in the classroom.
0: Not everyone is doing this sort of work. Not every community can do this work at this moment. The Mayo Clinic is one of the top hospitals in the country, and it's taken them 10 years, an enormous effort, just to get this far. And there's farther that they need to go, because Olmstead County is just one little county in Minnesota.
1: Every community is different for strengths and weaknesses in terms of how it can help families who've experienced adverse experiences. So we need to develop local systems, and that local systems need communication and collaboration between the medical home and these community agencies.
3: Each community is unique in terms of uh, the issues that it self-identifies. Uh, and so then the, the solutions then become more independently driven within communities, despite the fact that there may be some similarities you know across the nation.
1: You know, because every school district, every public health organization, every healthcare organization has different things they need to authorize sharing of medical information.
0: So far, we've talked about how to do our best for kids who have experienced ACEs and how the systems can be adapted to better help those kids. But when we're talking about systems of care, we need to expand even farther and talk about the systems that give people access to systems of care. We need to talk about how we can use these social systems to help prevent ACEs in the first place. Because for all the people thinking, well, doesn't this just come down to People needing to take personal responsibility for their actions. Isn't this all a matter of someone's personal actions and choices? No. No.
1: We have good evidence that high-level policy changes like supporting programs for that aid expectant mothers and parents of young children, like home visiting or parental support programs, or quality childcare and preschool for all. These are things that can both prevent adverse experiences and counteract their impact.
0: All of the good choices and personal responsibility in the world can't prevent ACEs when there are so many larger things at play. To prevent ACEs, you need to have a family that is supported by a community larger than yourself. And the U.S. can be a really hard place for some people to find family support. And you don't just have to take my socialist word for it. It's actually the Center for Disease Control that lists 21 concrete ways we can be preventing ACEs right now. They say, basically, support our families. We should have a ribbon color for that. Support our families. Put it on bumper stickers. Give me a, give me a sticker. Give me a magnet. Give me a T-shirt. Give me a trucker hat. What color would that ribbon be? Han suggested a puce, which I think tells you everything you need to know about this public radio producer, (laughs) that he even knew puce was a color. Frankly, I was like, I had to Google it. And the, the results were inconclusive. Anyways, there are a lot of things the CDC says we can do. From increasing economic opportunities to changing social norms to make bystander intervention more common. But the one thing I want to focus on today is... Parental leave. Paid parental leave. Kids are expensive, and so is taking care of them. Not having childcare is not an option if you want and need to keep your job. The U.S. does not have universal paid parental leave. So in 2017, only 15% of U.S. workers got any form of paid parental leave. So for many people who had full-time jobs, this paid leave includes... You know, maybe you can cobble together your vacation time, your sick pay, and then you get six weeks of unpaid leave or being paid at 60% if you have short-term disability insurance and you signed up for it before you were even pregnant. So 15% of people got paid any amount of money to spend time with their newborn baby or newly adopted baby or child, 15%, which means that 85% of people did not. They had to leave their job or leave their baby. That's a stressful choice, to say the least. This podcaster brought her baby to work after 48 hours because I'm a contractor, don't have any benefits, didn't have short-term disability. Uh, you know, it was, it was a great, it was great. I loved it. Basically, we don't respect women. We make it very hard to be a parent, especially a mother. Don't get me started. Okay, you might be thinking like, oh, FMLA. The Family Medical Leave Act is a law that requires most companies, not all, to give new parents 12 weeks of unpaid leave to care for a baby, which, mm, thank you for not paying me for three months. That's so helpful. Who do you know who can afford to not work for three months? Paid parental leave can increase the likelihood that mothers keep their jobs after giving birth, stressful choice averted, which by the way, can also reduce things like depression and even instances of intimate partner violence. This is just one area where there's a larger social system in place or not in place that keeps certain people at risk of ACEs and keeps people from helping develop protective factors. These are things we can already be doing to prevent ACEs. They're nothing new or fancy. They're solutions that are proven to help reduce the stress of raising a family. Anytime we take steps to decrease parental stress, we're decreasing the risk of abuse and dysfunction in the home, which decreases the number of ACEs a kid might experience. Because the estimates are that the effects of abuse and neglect cost the U.S. economy $401 billion annually in criminal justice, child welfare, special education, health care and productivity loss. So if we choose not to look at how these systems work, kids are going to keep getting hurt. Those hurt kids will grow into hurt adults, adults we share community and a society with adults who might have kids of their own. And when people are like, "Uh, no, mm, no, we can't afford that. We can't afford to help people learn how to raise their kids or take time off work or overhaul all these systems of support. We simply can't afford it. I don't see how we can afford not to. I'm going to take a quick step down off my soapbox, hopefully not pull a muscle or roll an ankle. And we're going to read some ads to you. We're back. I really did have to breathe deep after that one. (laughs) And uh, we're back. We're not done with our trip to Traumatown. It's time to go from systems to populations and ask the question, who are we talking about? Who's included in all this data? So Brandon Jones, who we met earlier with the story about Christmas ham, Brandon works with traumatized kids. He actually studied under Dr. Felitti, who conducted that first ACEs survey. Brandon knows ACEs as a professional with two master's degrees, but he also knows ACEs personally, from his own experiences growing up, as he says, trauma and drama.
2: Personally, I grew up in a household full of trauma and drama. That's how I explained it to people. Um, born to a teenage mother. She had me a couple weeks after graduating from high school. Um, ended up with a stepfather who was abusive, seen a lot of domestic violence as a kid. Um, thought he was my real dad a couple weeks before my 12th birthday. Family secret came out. Grandma let me know, hey, that's not your dad. Your dad's this person. You're going to go meet him on your birthday. Yep. Whoa. Trauma, 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 right? And... Um, did me my dad really didn't develop a relationship with him and kind of struggled with being a male, being a, bl- a young black man, trying to figure out what life is like. Um, but I was a nerd at the same time. So being able to put my head in books and learn and get to aspirations of college and actually make it to the University of Minnesota, all those things were huge for me.
0: Brandon eventually realized that he wanted to be a therapist. And it's as a therapist that he was first introduced to the ACEs study that measures adverse childhood experiences. As a part of his training, he was given the 10-question test by the two men who wrote it. Ten questions about abuse, neglect, and dysfunction that would give him a score that would tell him
2: his health risks as an adult. And the first question, I just kind of chuckled at, and I was like, hmm. The first question is, has an adult ever yelled at you, cursed at you, shoved you, um, you know, something in that nature? And I laugh because I'm like, all adults in my life have cursed at me and shoved me (laughs) and told me these things culturally. That's just how we discipline and rear our children is by doing those things, not from a traumatic way, even though it can cause trauma, but just a cultural custom of you need to keep your kids in line to protect them. Um, So I I was kind of thrown off by the A study, to be honest with you, at the beginning, because I'm like, this is going to be a long questionnaire for me if I've already got one point for something that I've seen all the time in my life.
0: And that you didn't consider... Trauma. Right. Not at all. Brandon had a lot of questions after taking that ACEs questionnaire. Like, the people who were the subjects of the original study.
2: Who are they? And why were these the questions that were picked? Because there were other things that happened in my childhood that were not asked on that questionnaire that I do consider traumatic. (laughs) Growing up in poverty, growing up in a neighborhood uh, with a lot of commotion. And what I mean by that is like sirens, people talking, living in apartment buildings, where there's a lot of people up and down stairs, just living in an urban environment. Um, myself, I did not grow up in foster care, but I knew a lot of kids who did. And I think that that's a traumatic market for a lot of kids as well. Um, being bullied was not listed on there. Those things happen to me. Those things are not on the ACE questionnaire at all. I grew up poor. I grew up on WIC, food stamps, and Section 8. None of those questions were asked. That has a huge, significant marker on my psychological state, how I view myself, my self-concept, and my self-esteem.
0: So who was ACEs normalized on? Who did make up that group of 17,000 people that got us all this data? Who was included?
2: The ACE study was normed on middle-class white folks the average age on that study was 57 years old. All these folks had a premium insurance, um, Kaiser Permanente. Those folks were white. 75 percent of the people of the study were white. Unfortunately, we live in a system where white folks have become the standard to the point where they don't even see themselves as a culture. It's just like, I'm just white. Right. And no, you have issues. The study was designed around the population it was studying. So the
0: questions reflect that, which means that there aren't questions about things that affect other groups of people. The limitations of the ACE study are real, and they're acknowledged by the original authors. We spoke with Dr. Vincent Felitti, who ran the study, and he agreed. Yep, there need to be more studies that include more questions and ask questions of different populations. And while nothing has been done that's as big as that original study, there have been some things that have expanded the scope. In 2013, a study was released from a coalition in Philadelphia that was looking at what ACEs looks like for an urban population— And they
2: expanded on the 10 questions in the original study. Have you ever been bullied? Were you in foster care? Do you feel like you live in a war zone? That's what they called it. They had several questions that were designed to be answered from someone who has come from an urban environment. And what they noticed was the ACE scores ended up being higher than the original scores due to the fact that these folks experienced trauma different.
0: Adding these questions adds important cultural context to the original ACEs study. It expands on that work and gives us more context about what's affecting people without them even realizing it. About where our systems could intervene or change. And the work continues. Most states in the U.S. are doing their own ACEs research. And new findings continue to emerge as we include more people and learn more about how this affects us all. But more work needs to be done. Because this isn't just a problem for one demographic of people, or the people in one geographic area, this is a problem that spans the globe. ACEs don't care about language or geography or religion. Kids are everywhere, ACEs happen everywhere, and the effects can be felt everywhere. When we talk about a global health crisis and a survey that was normalized in the US, what does that mean for all these many communities outside of the original ACEs study? How are we making space for any ACEs that those children are experiencing? Especially children who are experiencing the things we view as systems when we see them on the news. Mass migration, war, famine, genocide. We can't speak for all children, and all countries, and all populations. But we can ask our neighbors. Here in Minnesota, we have the largest Somali population in the United States. Some of this population includes refugees who were resettled here after the Somali Civil War around 1991. Some have immigrated here or been born here. The Somali population is a huge part of Minnesota, a backbone of Minnesotan life. So how does a refugee and immigrant community like the Somali experience ACEs and childhood trauma? We talked to Dr. Ahmed Kharee.
4: My name is Ahmed Khoury, I am from Somalia, and um, I have been practicing as a mental health practitioner for the last 13 years. I have an advanced degree, doctoral degree in psychology, it's called PsyD, and um, I'm also licensed as um, clinical mental health. I have been working with the community for the past 10 years in providing um, psychotherapy assessment and also consultations.
0: The majority of patients Dr. Curry sees are Somali, with some patients from other communities. And he mostly works with adults, some adolescents, and a few
4: children. I see trauma. I see oppositional defiance. I see ADHD. And I also see conduct disorder um, when I'm working with adolescents and children. Sometimes I would see depression. For adults, is mostly, um, if I'm working with immigrant communities, it will be PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, um, psychosis, and here and there of um, substance abuse. The trauma I see in the immigrant um, children or adolescents is the one that has been transferred from their parents to them. Most parents um, that are from Somalia have had um, exposed to the um, life-threatening situations in Somalia, like the civil war, famine, um, you know, immigrating to another country. So they have been exposed to a lot of hardship. So, and that they cured that with them when they settled in the refugee camps in the neighbouring countries. So these kids have inherited that stressful situation from their parents even though if they were born here they carry that with them it manifests in a way behavioral um dysregulation in a classroom setting isolation lack of identity issues all of those um signs can be traced back to trauma
0: Imagine the epigenetics within a kid whose parents and grandparents have experienced extreme poverty, civil war, and fleeing their country of origin. The U.S. government does require domestic medical evaluations to screen the health of people who immigrate from other countries. But the results of the mental health portion of that screening aren't always comprehensive. Like, if somebody points out that you're cutting a ham and you don't need to, and you're not even from a culture that eats ham, you don't have the context for the situation.
4: We perceive mental health in a different way in my community, um, and that's because we don't have a lot of terms in our language. We used to, and we still do, I think, um, um, call it like possession of demons in our community, and uh, the way we treat it is through traditional healing. So we go see the imams in the mosque, and um, who would, would read Quran. The idea of talk therapy helps you, um, you know, it's, it's new to them. And they don't really, they don't buy it so easily. <laughs> and we know that when we're talking about mental illness, um, really, you cannot operate on it. You cannot um, bandage on it. If somebody um, has a stroke and you tell them you need to go to phys- uh, physical therapy or, you know, teach them again how to lift a pen, that's fine with them because that's a physical illness. But um, it is the same thing in the mental health, mental illnesses Like you need to do that kind of therapy to be able to um, learn skills, to understand, have an insight of what's going on.
0: That's once you get to America and someone points out that you're cutting ham in half for no reason. But refugees and immigrants arrive here to a whole new language and context around mental health, which can be totally different or non-existent in their country of origin. And if they do know that they're cutting a ham, maybe they're not comfortable acknowledging that. Maybe ham is not a topic in their
4: culture. Stigma is huge in the community. That's another barrier, you know. you know, It's like people are going to know me. I'm crazy now. I'm going to see a, a doctor who is a brain doctor or who is, you know, a therapist. And I'm seeing it because my family or me too, myself, I think I'm crazy, you know. So and what do we know about? The crazy people, you know, we just sort of like degrade them. We call them names, you know. um, We call them you, you retarded. You know what I mean? So stuff like that hurts the community and therefore prevents them seeking help that they need.
0: We said in the last episode that having a solid cultural identity is a protective factor. Living in a place that denies or criticizes or criminalizes your cultural identity takes away some of your protection from the trauma you experience. The Philadelphia ACEs study asks about racism and feelings of safety. So think about that in bigger terms. For immigrant and refugee communities hearing anti-immigration and refugee rhetoric on the news, or seeing people from their country of origin being banned from the United States— That instills a serious sense of fear which can lead to toxic stress. This is a fear that Dr. Curry sees in his community here in Minnesota. He sees a fear of ice even for community members that are naturalized citizens. He sees kids who are afraid that ice will take them from their parents.
4: One of the key things we look at is the separation when we look at a trauma, parents being separated from their children. So that is really, really um, a huge thing for any child out there, that they see the same age of the children or different age being separated from their child without their consent. So it will be difficult to sit down with your children and tell them that, you know, um, this is happening in this country and the government is doing this. So... The question is, that is, are they going to come after us? So you can't normalize it because it's not a normal thing. You just have to support your children and make them understand and invite them to ask questions and also to um, validate their concerns and just be there for them. And you can say, it's, no, it's okay, it's okay, we'll move on, it's not okay thing. So it's really difficult. <laughs>
0: At TTFA, we have said before that it's not about comparison. Nobody can actually win the trauma cup. This is about context.
4: Childhood trauma is relative to the community you're living in, no matter where you live in the world. So we're looking at systematic trauma systems.
0: These trauma systems are huge. And they're normalized on people who look like me and live where I live. I couldn't count them as an ACE because they would never happen to me or to my kids. They didn't happen to my grandparents or my parents. Expanding on that ACE's study, recognizing the adverse experiences outside of our own, is a way of helping us build more empathy and more humanity. We started this series by looking at one childhood And now we've successfully bummed you out by making you think about the millions of traumatic childhoods taking place all around the world at this very moment. You're welcome. We started this series by suggesting a small shift in attitude towards the people around us. Shifting the question from what's wrong with you to what happened to you? And now we just leave you with a whole new pile of questions. Because the more aware you are of ACEs, the more you see them all around you. At the grocery store, on the news, at your kid's school, on the news again, on the internet. Everywhere you go, you can start to see the suffering of other people and imagine the ways it has affected them. It's not fun, but empathy rarely is. We here at TTFA are wrestling with the same questions you're probably asking yourself. Questions like, okay, now what? What happens to a world where 50 million children, the largest number since World War II, have been forcibly uprooted and the wealthiest country in the world is snapping shut our borders? What about the 271 million people in 2019 who migrated borders? Migration isn't an ace. But what is the migrant experience along the route? Or when they arrive at their new country? Like, what about the nearly 3,000 children who have been separated at the U.S.-Mexico border from their families by ICE? And what about forced migration from war? Famine? Genocide? What about refugee camps in Kenya, Jordan, South Sudan, Pakistan? What about refugee populations in Colombia, Greece, Bangladesh, Nepal? What about resettled refugee populations in Turkey, Germany, and here in the United States? What about the fact that we have the largest global refugee crisis in the past 75 years? What happens when these children grow up and have children of their own? What will they be passing down emotionally, behaviorally, genetically? When they're old enough to ask questions, What will they ask? And what answers will we be able to give them? I'm Nora McInerney, and this has been Terrible, Thanks for Asking. Hans Butcho is our senior producer. Marcel Malikibu is our associate producer. Hannah Meekock-Ross is... I had a good title for it the other day, and I forgot it. Shit. Project manager. I mean, it's, it's a title. I think it could be better. Jordan Turgeon is our digital producer. Our editor is Phyllis Fletcher. Megan Palmer is our vegan intern. Special thanks to Lauren D., Sam Chu, Jacob Maldonado Medina, Tracy Mumford, and Janae Heron. This episode is produced in partnership with Call to Mind, American Public Media's initiative to foster new conversations about mental health, and in partnership with St. David's Center for Child and Family Development, which is building relationships that nurture the development of every child and family. With support from the Sour Family Foundation, which is committed to improving the lives of disadvantaged children and their families in Minnesota. You can find resources to help understand childhood trauma and how to address it in your life or with someone you know at calltomindnow.org. Things like stuff from the National Child Traumatic Stress Network. And let us know how much this series helps you understand how what happened to you affects who you are. That and more at calltomindnow.org. We are taking a break from publishing for a couple weeks to work on some more stories for you. Months, turns out. Months. (laughs) Just a couple months, but it's not really a break. We're going to be working. Don't worry about it. We will be back unless we're not. Um, (laughs) I think we'll be back. We'll be back. We'll be back. We're we're pretty sure we'll be back. You can find us on Instagram at TTFA Podcast. I'm on Instagram at Nora Borealis. That's not my last name. Not my last name. Our theme music is by Joffrey Lamar Wilson, and we are a production of American Public Media. Always putting mittens. That's not a good one. I I truly am so bad at this. I don't know why I persist in attempting. I can't think of a single word that starts with A. I'm going to (laughs) cry. That's not American. I'm like, American public media is what it actually stands for. Wow. What a thrill. American. American.
1: (laughs) I feel the room getting
0: hotter. I know. You guys ever seen someone choke? Figuratively and also literally, Hans once saw me choke, and he did not attempt to save my life. Neither did my husband. What's that about? Find out on next season of Heavyweight. (laughs) Actually, we should. We should bring that up. (laughs) One time I almost died, and Hans, senior producer, and my current husband, Conspiracy, both almost let it happen, choked on a carrot. We've got the tape. I've got the audio to prove it. So... Look forward to that in the new season. I am really hanging on to this credits, these credits. Okay. Um, Thanks, everyone, for listening to our podcast. Hope you're doing well. Um, If I ever leave you a voicemail, it'll be this long, 47 minutes. Okay. Bye.